Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Georgie. That was Mel's first time reading the Bible. She became a believer last year. How good is that? Ephesians has been described as the divinest composition known to man. Someone described it as the, the crown and the climax of Paul's theology. Uh, John Calvin described it as his favorite letter. He says that no New Testament letter has such a clear understanding of the gospel of grace. With this focus on, on Jesus and his church, it's essential that every church today understands Ephesians. And so, yeah, we're going to spend five months in Ephesians, just five months. It is six chapters long. It's 155 verses. You can read it in 20 minutes. And we're going to spend five months slowly digging deep into Ephesians. You know that, that spiritual renewal we're harking on about? I can guarantee if you dig deep into Ephesians, you will experience that. Because this is like a, a treasure chest for your soul. It is rich. And you're pointing here thinking, oh, look, I, I know Ephesians. I've done it so many times. Can I say that most of us have a very superficial understanding? Uh, we know the first three chapters are about theology, last three about practice. You know, get your doctrine right, leads to change behavior, belief and behavior, creed and conduct. But it's way beyond that. In my preparation, God has opened my eyes to how I've been reading Ephesians from this, this earthly, rational 
mindset, and I've been missing out. God has opened my eyes to this, this spiritual dimension of Ephesians, this spiritual reality. Because I, I am alive with Christ now. And I'm raised with Christ now. And I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly realms now. It's a bit like, you know, when you, when you put some, some cash in a drawer for later, but, but years later you forget it was there. And you open the drawer and think, wow, I'm actually rich. But I didn't realize it. We've got this letter called Ephesians that we think that we know. But we're actually way, way richer than you realize if you would let the Spirit speak to you through Ephesians. The principal of uh, Princeton Theological Seminary in the U.S. read Ephesians as a 15-year-old. He says this, Jesus Christ became the center of everything for me. I've been quickened. I, I really was alive in Christ. I was united to Christ. I had everything I needed in Jesus. And this longing of my heart to, to contribute to that unity in Christ became the passion of my entire life. Isn't that extraordinary? One little letter utterly transformed the life of a 15-year-old. And that's what it does. This little letter of Ephesians, it will grab hold of you. It will open your eyes to, to see the world differently, to see the church differently, and see yourself differently. So we're going to work through it slowly. But this is not just a letter about you. Ephesians is not primarily about your relationship with Jesus. It's not just you and Jesus, my salvation, my security, my identity. Because this is a corporate letter. This is about us together. Because when you're in Christ, and I'm in Christ, then we together are in Christ in this, this thing that God calls the church. God's complex beautiful, difficult thing called the body of believers. But through the church, he has chosen to, to make known to the world the, the, the manifold wisdom of grace. And through the church, you and I will encounter Jesus in a fresh way. So word of warning, Ephesians will, will challenge you about your consumeristic mindset about the church. What can I get out of church? It's not about that. It's what can you give to church? It will challenge you with your material mindset about the world is all you can see, touch, feel, and hear. It's way beyond that. You live in a spiritual realm. And it will challenge you. It will challenge you about this individual, about, about me, 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 me. So I'm excited and daunted to preach through Ephesians. Let me give you some background. It was written about AD 62, AD 62, by the Apostle Paul, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ. He's writing 3, verse 1, from a prison cell. He calls himself a prisoner of the Lord. So he's writing from Rome, AD 62. Verse 1, he's writing to Ephesus, to the church in Ephesus. And the reason we had Acts 19 read is because Paul visited Ephesus for two and a half years. And what happened was that Paul went to Ephesus, he preached the gospel, and we're told that everybody in that region heard the good news. Isn't that extraordinary? Everybody in that region had heard about Jesus. 
The gospel went out. Church was exploding. And from Ephesus, all these other churches were planted. Now what you might not realize, if you look at verse 1, is that those two words in Ephesus are not actually in most original manuscripts. Look at your footnote. To God's holy people. Those words in Ephesus are not, are not actually there. To God's holy people, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Why is that? Because, yes, Paul is writing to his friends in Ephesus. Of course he is. But this letter is not just for them. It's for all the other churches in a local region. Because, like, Ephesus is the, is the, the center. But from Ephesus, hundreds of churches have been planted. So the letter goes to Ephesus, and then goes to Colossae, and then goes to Laodicea, and to Hierapolis, and all these other churches. And that explains why in Ephesians there's no personal greetings of people by name or no particular problem to, to address. It's, it's a general letter. But before we dive into it, let me give you a warning. When Paul left Ephesus, the church in Ephesus was, was thriving. People were becoming Christians. They were planting churches left, right, and center. And you think, wow, what an amazing church. But how quickly a church can crumble. When you lose Jesus as a center, how quickly can a church crumble? Because just a couple of decades later, if you read the letter to Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says to Ephesus, you have lost your first love. You've lost your first love. You've got all these programs. And you're putting up these new buildings, and you've got your publicity right, and you've got your marketing right, but you've lost Jesus. And when you've lost Jesus, you're not a church anymore. And so when we go through Ephesians, please keep that in mind. Just because the Bridge Church is growing, just because we're planting churches, doesn't mean that we've made it. We've got to keep Jesus at the center of this church and the center of our lives. Yes? Let's start with just two verses. I'm going to just focus on the first two verses, and there's so much gold in it. And my goal today is that you would leave here knowing how God sees you, knowing how God defines you, knowing that you are secure in Jesus and rich beyond your imagination. And I say that because there's kind of an identity crisis in church. We're, we're all asking, who are we? Who am I? Who am I? Now, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a pastor. I'm a friend. But is that my identity? Because when those things are no longer true, who am I then? Where do you find your identity? And the answer is in Christ. So three points there. Who are you? Number one, you are a saint in Sydney. You're a saint in Sydney. Ephesians 1 verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people. The word for holy people there is the word saint. Same word. To the set-apart ones, to the one that God declares to be holy. To the saints. Now, I know that's not how the Catholic Church uses the word saint. 
And we think saint is somebody who has done a miracle or achieved something spectacular or has a, a day named after them. But, but if you are in Christ, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe the gospel, if you come to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God says you are a saint. God looks at you and says, Saint Rebecca, Saint Brennan, Saint Julianne, Saint Gavin. I, I, I don't know whether you ever see yourself. I, I'm a saint. God defines me as his saint. And if you're thinking, oh, Paul, I'm not a saint. I know you're not. Give me five minutes with you, I can tell you you're not a saint. But that's what God calls you. That's how God sees you. Why? Because you're in Christ. Because of his grace. Verse 2, grace and peace to you. From God our Father, our Father, the same Father of Jesus Christ is our Father. And he sees you the way that he sees Jesus. Your Father in heaven who created you, who loves you, who knows you, he lavishes you, verse 2, with grace. His undeserved favor. He doesn't treat you as you deserve. He treats you completely with love and compassion and forgiveness. Now, if you're saying, oh, Lord Paul, I, I couldn't be a saint. I'm not a saint. Well, look at the first word of this entire letter. Who's writing this? Paul. Not me. The Apostle Paul. But he wasn't always called Paul, was he? Paul wasn't his birth name. His birth name was Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And Saul was an arrogant man, a nasty man. Saul was this, this, this Pharisee who studied theology and he hated Christians. Saul's mission in life was to persecute the church, kill the Christians, get rid of this Jesus stuff. Now there's a man who was violent, wicked, angry, arrogant, a murderer. He's not a saint. And then he met Jesus. He encountered Jesus on, on that, that road to Damascus. Remember that story? He, he's walking down that road to Damascus and the light from heaven and the voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he's probably thinking, I'm not persecuting you, Jesus, but, but he, he was. Because I hope you realize what you do to God's people, you do to Jesus. Now, now Paul hated Jesus, but Jesus loved Paul. Paul despised the church, but Jesus loved Paul. And Paul described himself as the worst of sinners, but he was saved by grace. And if God can do that to Paul, he can do that to you. If you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, I'm not a saint. If you knew me, Paul, if you knew my past, if you knew my present, I don't care about your past or your present because God sees you as a saint. God sees you as a forgiven, redeemed, loved, chosen saint. And if you're sitting here thinking whether well, somebody in your life who is beyond salvation, somebody in your life who, who could never be a saint, well, think again. Because if God can save Paul, Saul, he can save anybody, can't he? So Paul experienced God's grace. 
and God's peace, verse 2, grace and peace to you, because they're like these Siamese twins, grace and peace. They often come together. But grace always precedes peace. There is no peace without grace. But, but when you received grace, you have this peace. You have a peace with God and the peace of God. You have a peace with him and a peace within. And this is your new identity. You are a saint. My, my first pastor in the UK was a man called David Fletcher. Great man of God. Uh, for the first four years of my Christian life, I went to that church. And every single Sunday, he would see me at church, and in, in this, this posh English accent, he would say, St. Paul? Oh, good morning, St. Paul. And I think, that is really weird. <laughs> but you know what? God used that to instill in me this, that is how God sees me. That is who I am. I am a saint because I'm in Christ. But I'm still here in Sydney. I would love it if God had teleported me straight to glory the moment I became a Christian. I would love it if I'd been free from temptation, free from my sin, free from myself. But God doesn't do that. He leaves us here. Verse 1, to God's holy people in Ephesus, to God's holy people in Colossae, to God's holy people in Sydney, in Kirribilli, wherever you live. This is your home. And what struck me as I read about Ephesus is Sydney and Ephesus, they're almost identical. Ephesus was the the bustling city, the the massive trading center, the the center for arts. It had this massive amphitheater that could seat 25,000 people. It prided itself in its sporting achievements. It had gymnasiums. It had it had academia, it was a center for learning, and it was this, this center for anything goes when it comes to religion. You believe what you like to believe as long as it makes you feel good. And they had this, this temple called the Temple to Artemis or Temple to Diana, and it was huge. It was made of marble about the size of Olympic Stadium. And people would go there and worship whatever god they wanted to worship. And that was the culture that these Ephesian Christians lived in. They were surrounded by idolatry. They were surrounded by anything goes. And it was so hard to live as a saint. Let's be honest, that's Sydney, isn't it? Surrounded by idolatry. We worship our sport. We worship our sun. We worship our beach. We worship our so-called culture. I can say as an Englishman, our so-called culture. But it's really hard to live differently as a saint. Number two, you're secure in Christ. You're a saint in Sydney, but you're secure in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, look at it with verse verse 1. To God's holy people, the faithful in Christ Jesus. That is your identity. You're in Christ. All that Jesus has, he's given to you. All that Jesus is, he gives to you. God the Father treats you like he treats his own son, Jesus. I don't know whether you know, but, but the word Christian only comes three times in the whole Bible. The word in Christ comes over 250 times. That's how you describe yourself. I'm in Christ. That, that phrase, in Christ, comes 11 times in the first 14 verses. Just look at a few of them with me. Verse 3. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. That's going to blow your mind next week. Before you were born, before you even existed, God had his eyes on you and said, yep, that person's going to be in Jesus. Verse 5, he predestined you for adoption to sonship in Jesus Christ, literally. Verse 7, in Christ you have redemption through his blood. Without Christ there is no redemption. Without Christ there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 11, in Christ we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him. That is your idea, you are in Christ. But what does that mean? See, if I said to you here, I follow Christ. You understand that. You understand what it means to follow somebody. If I say, oh, I, I'm under Christ, I submit to Christ, you understand the concept of submission, being under somebody. If I say, oh, I'm inspired by Christ, you get that idea that somebody inspires you. But what does it mean to be in Christ? Let me try and help you understand. Imagine you're at the airport and you want to go to the Gold Coast. Who doesn't want to go to the Gold Coast? And the plane is there waiting to go to the Gold Coast. Now, what's your relationship with that plane and the Gold Coast? If you said, oh, look, I'm under that plane, I'm under the authority of that plane, that's not going to get you to the Gold Coast. If you say, oh, I'm inspired by that plane because it can fly to the Gold Coast, and one day I, might, I too might fly to the Gold Coast. Inspiration is beautiful, but it's meaningless. If you say, oh, I'm going to follow that plane. I'm going to map the, the flight path of that plane so I too know how to fly to the Gold Coast. Whoopie-doo, you know how to get there. How are you going to get to the Gold Coast? If you're in that plane. If you're in the plane, you get to the Gold Coast. If you're in the plane, you go where the plane goes. If you're in Christ, you go where Christ goes. What he did, you did. Where he goes, you go. You're not, you're not, you're not separate from him. You're in him. He lives in you and you are in him. Now, did you hear what I just said? What he did, you did. That's going to blow your mind. So when Jesus kept the law perfectly, God sees you as keeping the law perfectly, even though you didn't. If you're in Christ, when Jesus died, you died. When Jesus was raised, you were raised. When Jesus is seated in heaven, you're seated there. Everything that he did on earth, God counted as you have having done. That is extraordinary. You know, Galatians 2 says that you no longer live, but the life that you live, you now live in his body. You can't do anything separate from him. You're united with him. It's, it's that, that marriage illustration that, that Naomi used in the kids' talk. I've done over 500 weddings. And the interesting thing is marriage prep. Because you have two independent people about to get married. As often the case... One of them in those marriage preps talks about their financial debt. And the good news for the person they're about to marry is that as soon as you marry them, their debt 
is your debt as well because you now won. But the person who owns the, the mega mansion, their mansion becomes your mansion because when you're married, you are one. What they have, you have. And that's how Jesus describes his relationship with you. Ephesians 5, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife and become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Jesus and the church. Jesus defines his relationship with you like a marriage relationship. What he has is yours. What he does, you do. And I I think what's fascinating is that I often marry people from outside the church who have been cohabiting for many, many, many years. And I said to them, why, why are you bothering to get married? You've been living together 20 years. Why are you getting married? And number one answer, I want security. I want it to be permanent. I want a sense that this is going to last forever. I want some safety and security. That's what a union does. It brings you security. And that's what Christ does for you. If you're here today and you're somebody who struggles with self-worth, self-esteem, if you're spending your entire life craving the, the affirmation and the adoration and the applause of people, you're looking in the wrong place. Because people are fickle and people fail you. You've got everything you need in Jesus. If you're going to read the rest of this chapter, in Jesus you are chosen. In Jesus you are loved. In Jesus you are redeemed. In Jesus you are forgiven. In Jesus you are restored. Everything you could possibly want for security in this life is found in a person called Jesus Christ. And that is permanent. It doesn't change. Because, you know, the love that Jesus has for you is not dependent on you. It's because you're united to him. So you're a saint in Sydney. You are secure in Christ. And then finally, you're seated in the heavenly realms. You now are seated in the heavenly realms. And that's this spirituality that I'm excited to to, to discover in the weeks to come. We are now seated in the heavenly realm. I hope you know that this world is not just about what you can see, touch, taste, or feel. The world that you live in is not just physical. It's not just emotional. There is a spiritual realm. And when you think of the heavenly realm, please stop thinking, this is earth, and that is heaven, and one day we will get from earth to heaven. The two are intersecting. The two are coming together now. Six times in his letter, he talks about being in the heavenly realms. 1 verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He doesn't promise you spiritual blessing, phys- physical blessings. He's not talking about a bigger house or Rolex watches or a big bank balance. He's talking about spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. You're, you're loved, you're chosen, you're restored, you're redeemed. 2 verse 6, God raised us with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. John Stock calls the heavenly realms the sphere of, of spiritual activities. 
the unseen world of spiritual reality. This spiritual realm, this heavenly realm that we are supposed to enjoy and experience now. Now, I'm a mathematician by trade, so let me try and explain it. If I, if I start with a dot and drag it to a line, that is one-dimensional. If I take a line and make it a square, that's two-dimensional. If I take a, a square and make it a cube, that is three-dimensional. Now, how about I took that cube and dragged it to a fourth dimension? And you go, oh, Paul, I don't understand that. My, my mind can't comprehend that. In my maths PhD, I had this beautiful equation. Trust me, there was nine dimensions. <laughs> nine dimensions. Can you imagine that? Nine dimensions of partial differential equations. It was so sexy. And <laughs> because there is something which our minds can't quite comprehend. But if you live your entire life naive to the fact that this spiritual realm realm has actually intersected with your physical realm, then you're missing out. I believe in angels. Do you? The time when one of our youngest kids was about to, to run across the road and, and, and go into this ongoing traffic and just, just somebody stopped them. That, I believe that was an angel. The person who rocked up to church 15 years ago when I was dating Rach, uh, and she said she was from Hawaii. She was an air steward on the Hawaiian Airlines, and she gave us this advice on marriage, and we never, ever saw it. I believe she was an angel. I believe in the angelic realm that exists here on earth today. Do you? I believe in the, the, the realm of the demons and the evil forces and, and the devil. I believe in spiritual attack. There is a reason why I've been flat on my back for the last three weeks as we begin this year of spiritual renewal and you take the pastor out of church. Why? That's as a spiritual attack on this church. I believe that when I pray for healing in the name of Jesus, we have the power to do that because the spiritual realm has come down here to earth. And if you are living your Christian life based on what you can see, touch, feel and think, you're living a, a one-dimensional, two-dimensional Christian life. That's what excites about Ephesians, that we're going to experience the spiritual realm where heaven and earth come down to meet. So who are you? You're a saint. You are secure in Christ. And you are now seated in the heavenly realms. I'll finish with this. It's a lady called Hetty Green. She died in 1919, and she is known today as America's greatest miser. She had $100 million in 1919. That's a huge amount of money. <laughs> but she lived like a pauper. It said that she refused to heat up her oatmeal. She ate cold oatmeal every day because she thought that heating was too expensive. She had $100 million, but she lived like a poor person. And church, my fear is that many of us are living these poor Christian lives. We're living a Christian life which is not rich like it could be. We're not experiencing like God like we should do because we're not focused on Him and all that He can do for us and all that He has done for us.
So please know that you're a saint who's secure in Christ. And you've got everything you need in the heavenly realms because you're in Christ. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we are in Christ, that we are alive in Him and raised with Him and seated with Him. And everything that He has is ours. Thank you that we are chosen and loved and redeemed and adopted as your children, yet we don't often live like that. So I invite you now to pray this prayer together that comes on the screen. Heavenly Father, we praise you for adopting us as your children and making us heirs of eternal life. In your mercy, you've washed us from our sins and made us clean in your sight. Yet we still fail to love you as we should and serve you as we ought. Forgive us our sins, renew us by your grace, that we may continue to grow as members of Christ, in whom alone is our salvation. Amen.